0: Good morning. Our next case is valued health solutions at all versus pharmaceutical research associates at all. We'll hear from the appellant.
1: Good morning, may it please the court. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is David Guidry. I'm grateful to be before you today on behalf of my clients, Value Health Solutions and Neil Parthasarathy. We're here asking this court to reverse several errors that the business court made below. Um, these were mistakes that not only did great harm to my client's case, but if they're not corrected by this court, uh, will do great harm to North Carolina law in several areas, civil discovery, pleading amendments, pleading standards, and on summary judgment. Um, we're asking this court to rectify those errors and send this case back down for the jury trial that it deserves with good law behind it.
0: You, like, you don't dispute that we're applying uh, Delaware law stuff substantively?
1: To the contract claims, uh, Your Honor, that's correct. There are also some uh, fraud and there's a state Uh, statutory claim for unfair deceptive trade practices as well. And those would be under North Carolina law. And before I forget, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, if I may. the case centers on the negotiations, the terms and performance of an asset purchase agreement, Uh, this was for the purchase of a unique and one-of-a-kind set of software solutions that were created by Value Health Solutions. You've got in front of you an extensive record in the case um, and I know it's technical at times because it does involve software. I'm going to try to avoid jargon uh, if I can because I know it it's, makes it even more complicated at times but I think the issues end up being quite simple uh, once you wade through some of that technical jargon. Um, a few key facts just out of the gate. PRA, the uh, APOE, they coveted VHS's software from the beginning. Um, PRA was the party that was enticing VHS to do the deal. They were the ones that wanted to do a deal. Um, PRA had undisclosed motives for why it wanted to do the deal. That did not become clear until uh, later after the transaction closed. PRA knew through the negotiations that VHS would be enticed by these long-term sales incentives. and knew that VHS wanted to continue selling software externally after the deal was done. And the last thing to note is that PRA's due diligence of VHS software was a one-way street. That's how it worked. PRA looked at the software to decide what PRA wanted to make out of that software. Um, And then the reason we're here is because PRA got everything it wanted out of that deal and VHS didn't get any of the consideration, the bulk of the consideration that was paid, it's supposed to be paid after the closing. Um, And so VHS ended up filing suit, breach of contract, the APA, fraud, unfair deceptive trade practices, and also negligent misrepresentation. I'm at the business court. We're here because the business court aired in four orders. And I'll just go chronologically. There was a discovery denial. Uh, There was denial of leave to amend, uh, to file an amended complaint. There was a, a, a dismissal of claims on PRA's partial motion to dismiss. And then there was summary judgment. Just like in the briefs, I'm gonna go through those in reverse chronological order. Um, So beginning with summary judgment, the business court overlooked extensive evidence in the record that there were triable issues of fact on the breach of the APA on fraud and unfair deceptive trade practices claims. Um, Obviously, the breach of contract claim starts with the asset purchase agreement, which is in the record, Um, and, and VHS claims that of the two sets of milestones there were in the APA, there was this technical set of software development milestones. Um, and those can be found first described um, in the APA, which is in the record of page 42, and then in the back of it in page 78. And this claim is an express and an implied claim. So this is, um, as Chief Justice pointed out, this is a Delaware law claim. And so what the business court missed in its analysis is that Delaware law has two aspects to the implied covenant. And the business court didn't apply the first aspect that we were arguing applies here, which is that under Delaware law, when there is contractual discretion conferred, it must be exercised in good faith and fair dealing. The court looked at it at a different aspect uh, under Delaware law. And so when you take that into account, you've got a provision in the APA that requires PRA to reasonably determine the completion of this first set of technical milestones and they must do so reasonably, which is an objective standard under the law and then they've got good faith and fair dealing as the implied discretionary factor that's, that's backing that up as well. Um, and it's not simply a matter as the business court seemed to think of just looking at the requirements that are listed in the schedule in the APA and saying well, there's some here and there's some not because it's a discretionary, a reasonable objective, reasonable discretionary determination that must be made in good faith. And so the circumstances of that are the only way that you can, you can determine whether that was done reasonably in good faith. And what we know from the record is that, first of all, PRA knew when it approved the transaction that it was gonna take it at least two years from its board presentation, you can see this, at least two years to implement and take apart VHS's software but yet it only had 18 months of a timeline in the APA. Um, as for the requirements themselves, PRA didn't, it's, it's not like PRA took the requirements from the APA and watched them. They were an afterthought. They got placed into a shelf uh, on a, in a desk drawer somewhere and no one paid any attention to these requirements because PRA wasn't focused on them and didn't, didn't really care whether they were implemented or not. Um, after the transaction closed, PRA's priorities changed completely and it shifted all the requirements. They were changed time and time again over the 18-month period. Um, and, and ultimately, the person who implemented them knew that they had been misused when they were put in the APA to begin with, and they didn't, didn't really meet um, any requirements. But yet, that same person performed this cursory sort of analysis that I referred to where you just go through the list. And then ultimately, Neil, um, Neil who worked at, at VHS was, was let go, um, by Pra, um, and in the very email where he was he was terminated, his boss at the time says that these milestones were quote so loosely worded they can be argued either way. That's the first milestone, and the second milestone was a quote gray area. So if if Mr. Parthasarathy's boss were on this jury. Um, she would be able, I could convince her that, that Pierre was not reasonable and reasonable in, in good faith in determining these requirements. She seems, she seems open to the idea that that was not the case.
2: But from the business court standpoint, uh, wasn't there the view that uh, in terms of looking at good faith that this was an arm's length uh, transaction and that uh, the parties were mutually overly optimistic as to the meeting of these milestones in terms of the integration of the software into how PRA operated?
1: Well, I don't think that, um, that you can attribute, I guess the the circumstances of whether they were optimistic or not onto the determination that PRA makes. And I guess if you did want to include that kind of determination, then that would be something that jury would consider as well, that, that, that maybe perhaps um, they thought they could get more done than they could. But again, the the determination of the requirements um, in the due diligence process was a one-way street. PRA came up with these requirements and then dictated them. That was before the transaction. And then after the transaction, that's exactly what happened as well. So it was up to PRA, when you're measuring their, their exercise of discretion, to look at the circumstances under which they were exercising it. And I think that presents the jury question on these first two milestones.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you resurrected the uh, phrase one-way street because, again, that emphasizes what I said in my question earlier. Uh, You're claiming that this is not an arm's-length transaction in that apparently there was some uh, superior uh, bargaining power that uh, the defendant had that uh, your client did not.
1: Certainly when it came to the technical milestones, Your Honor, it was, it was a one-way street. And the, the, the knowledge and information about the software, implementation, integration, that was, and what PRA had planned for its internal systems, what its old system uh, did, what gaps it wanted to fill with the new software versus the, the, you know, the old VHS software versus the new system, that was entirely a, a one-way street. Um, For PRA to dictate those requirements.
2: Well, where where would the business court have been derelict in terms of uh, Determining that the motions to be dismissed would be allowed on some of your clients claims uh, in light of the business courts determination that uh, It was not a one-way street, uh, but that it was uh, an arm's-length transaction
1: Well, I, I I guess in, in the first case, it was the discretionary, overlooking the, the Delaware law discretionary factor. The business court used this other aspect of Delaware law's implied covenant where you, you look for gaps in the contract. And in this particular milestone, that's not what the basis of the implied covenant claim is. It's, it's, the, it's the discretionary part of PRA's um, obligations. And so I think that was step one for the business court is it didn't, it didn't view the discretionary aspect of the implied covenant, and then when in doing so, it didn't take into account. You can tell from the business court's analysis that the first thing the business court seems to assume is that the requirements as listed are not met, and so the business court skips over the sort of circumstances of what led to the requirements, the one-way <coughs> due diligence dictating the requirements, and then all the after-the-fact changes that were made. And and so once you start from saying like you don't, you know, not, the five aren't met, then you kind of miss out on the rest of the analysis under the implied covenant. Um, and I think that's where the business court erred on these two milestones.
3: So I do I do appreciate that it is a large record. But what what is what are the key points of the evidence that was introduced at summary judgment, um, from which the the court, in your view, should have you know given you all the reason benefit of all the reasonable inferences, and if believed, would have proven what you're just telling us. That in other words, that the that. Um, PRA did not that the milestones were changed, the requirements were changed. PRA didn't live up to its obligation in good faith to carry out a reasonable determination.
1: Yes, so I I think the there's substantial evidence in the record that we presented on that front, and the business court seems to just kind of gloss over it. There's not really any reference to to what we presented, and if it's 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 all contained in mostly in volume four um, of the. Um, of the Rule 9-D uh, supplement that we added. That's the bulk of our response in opposition to summary judgment. And there's also the deposition transcripts. There's 17 of them presented. But the primary ones that will aid the court in understanding here that we told the business court about was depositions of Mike Irene and Chuck Piccarillo. Those were the two people for PRA that that worked on these requirements behind the scenes. And they're the ones that dropped the ball in having them um, brought internally to, to, uh, to, to uh, PRA. They talk about not handing off the APA, it just got put in a desk drawer. Those two guys talk about how that didn't happen. And Mike Irene, who helped sort of unwittingly draft the requirements, talks about he just got assigned to something else, and nobody knew, you know, nobody was watching the APA as if it was some roadmap. They just kind of moved on.
3: And, um, and can you um, address quickly, the business court says that the, in the APA, the statement that you, know, you can't condition payment of a second stage on payment for the first stage, that that somehow didn't mean that the company couldn't uh, condition you know, achievement of the second milestone on achievement of the first?
1: Yes, I will. And that actually, that, that, same, um, that same breach theory uh, claim is what we made, not only for the, it's for the third sort of technical milestone, but that also goes to external sales. Um, and there was, as the APA structured, um, there was the list of the milestones, and that is on... Um, it's essentially right at the beginning of the APA on pages uh, 42 and 43 of the record. Those milestones continue individually for, on page 42 and 43. Um, and after the individual milestones, there is a, a provision in the APA that's called the independence of contingent payments. I refer to it as the independent milestone provision. Um, and what this provision says is kind of wordy, but the key phrase is it's, it's comparing or describing PRA's um, obligations to pay contingent payments. Uh, is an independent obligation not otherwise conditioned or contingent upon the satisfaction of any conditions precedent to any preceding or subsequent contingent payment. So that's step one. And the key to that is that it's not contingent upon the satisfaction of, quote, any conditions precedent or preceding. So what that language does is it tells you that there are some things that have to be done within each milestone, and PRA cannot tie them together, sort of cross condition them. Um, and the second sentence of that says, for the avoidance of any doubt, and by way of example, and then what it does there is it gives an example of where the the milestones are paid out of sequence. The second milestone is paid before the first. And so what that example tells you is that the parties understood and agreed that these milestones would be concurrent, just like the timeframes run, and then they could be pursued concurrently. That was the that was the whole point of the transaction. PRA wanted, to entice VHS with sales. VHS wanted to pursue sales. PRA wanted this internal development, but the ground they came to was that it would be concurrent and equal with these running milestones. And so when PRA asserts its power after the deal to (coughs) stop VHS from being able to pursue any sales, and when I say stop VHS, PRA said we're not going to pursue. Pra is not gonna pursue any sales. First, we're gonna, quote, get it done for PRA, something to that effect came from the CEO who had, who had um, negotiated the deal with, with Neil and with VHS. So you've got an express breach of the independent milestone provision right from day one when VHS and Neil are, are working uh, after the APA closes because PRA says immediately. And, and this ties into our fraud claim as well because this There's evidence in the record, again, mostly in volume four, there's board presentations about PRA approving the transaction that shows that PRA never intended to pursue the sales. There's emails about negotiating where they find out that VHS is interested in sales and they know that that's a good way to incentivize them. Then there's also a presentation by the board that says we don't really see this as a viable option. And so that was the nature of the, the presentation to the board. That's what management presented to the board um, in order to approve the transaction. So from there was there, a contingent, um, the contingent, sorry, the independent milestone provision was an express breach. And then when you get to the, the external sales milestones, those are a separate set that are listed in the APA. And the, they went, they went in, in, in groups of years. So there were these anniversary periods. Like if you could reach, reach threshold sales in the first two years, full periods, three years, um, and we also assert that there was a breach of that conditional uh, payment provision um, under the implied covenant of Delaware law. And that's where the second piece of the Delaware law covenant comes in where Delaware law will fill the gaps or the silence in a contract. And the APA, uh, it, because it just states these provisions in conditional terms upon achievement of the sales, then the payment will be made, there's no other provision in the APA that fills the gaps and the silence about um, what that means upon achievement. Um, it, it, it's it's left it's left silent in the APA, and and what Delaware law says is is that that's a gap, and we need a legal standard for what how we're going to measure the post closing conduct with that gap, and that that legal standard is the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. So then you ask yourself, like you look at the conduct, the post closing conduct, to, to say what what is the post-closing conduct that PRA committed and and measure it under that good faith and fair dealing standard.
0: Council, I wanted to take you back. When you were describing um, the forecast of the evidence that's in the record that creates a genuine issue material fact, can you specifically what of that evidence um, do you say creates the fact question on the unfair and deceptive trade practice allegation and, and also on the fraud allegation? Where do we find that? Yes, sir, again, all in volume
1: four, which was our opposition to the brief, and if you'd like me to be uh, specific, um, actually handed up something to the court, um, which is kind of a highlight of some information. We've um, Got it's sort of a printout. Um, so what this is, this is from volume three for, at 440. Uh, this is an email um, where Chuck, who I mentioned was negotiating with Neil. This is prior to the transaction being closed. Um, where he is uh, acknowledging and sort of telling his boss that he knows that he can create some milestone payments to incentivize getting, getting it ready, a deal ready, to roll out within PRA. So this is sort of the acknowledgement that this is what VHS wanted. Um, I, I didn't um, include it, but there's the board presentation also in this volume um, that, that it highlights PRA's real intent when they approve the transaction. PRA did an operational assessment, they called it, of the software. And that's included in the board presentation. It's done a few months prior, but it was sort of put in with the board presentation along with the letter of intent that PRA provided to VHS. And again, it's technical jargon, but when you weed through it, what you can see from the operational assessment, which is shared all the way up to the board, is that PRA was going to deconstruct the software. They saw no, they saw no value in selling it as they were approving the transaction. They saw more than two years of deconstructing it and toying with it and tinkering with it and maybe they would use it internally but they didn't see any evidence of such. So that was in the board presentation. And you've got this sort of knowledge that PRA knew how to entice VHS from this email. Um, but
0: yes, um, I think we're gonna hear from, um, from your friend that those uh, concerns are addressed in the contract and we don't, breaches of contract, even breaches of implied provisions, you know, the, applied covenant of good faith and things like that, our courts have said don't create an unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. So to point me, I just wanna see what exactly you say went beyond just things that are governed by the contract and became this standalone claim. Sure, so I
1: mean specific if you're, so unfair deceptive will be triggered by fraud, it will be triggered by negligent misrepresentations. Um, So the, the, The carelessness with which PRA represented the technical requirements was a claim for negligent misrepresentation that we had. It didn't survive to summary judgment, but we have evidence in the record that it was carelessly done. We just didn't get to present that at the the business court. It was dismissed earlier. We have that. There's also the fraud claim, which is the, the fraud that we tried to present in the case was that there was fraud by omission. Um, which uh, was all of the information that PRA was leaving out during the um, during the negotiation process. And it's clear from the record that Neil's testimony is uncontroverted. No one ever told him that PRA was going to only work on development but not work on sales. And when I asked the other two guys, three guys, what they remembered, no one can remember, or two guys that were in the negotiations, they can't remember anymore whether they ever happened to tell Neil that PRA was going to condition their sales. So you've got this equivocation on their part and a very clear statement by Neil that that was always part of the deal. And you've got also a lot of evidence in the record that Neil was shocked when he got there. He he started on day one providing sales presentations and he was shut down right out of the gate. That is evidence, right, that, that he was doing what he thought he was doing and that they had to shut him down. That's in the record, that's Shannon's testimony he's bringing them in one of these emails, he's trying to bring a sales opportunity even before the deal was closed and he was told wait, after the deal closed, he tries to pursue that opportunity and that's when he's told no, don't do it, for, no, we're not gonna do that right now. Um, there's also, as far as unfair deceptive trade practices go, there's a lot of evidence in the record that after Pierre got what it wanted from the development, at least as far as they could run it out, they were misrepresenting to Neil that they were gonna extend the APA. They, they assured him that they wouldn't, quote, penalize him for PRA's own delays. That came straight from Colin Shannon, the CEO's mouth. Uh, but yet they never, they never made good on any of those kind sort of false assurances. Because meanwhile what was happening behind the scenes is they hired an outside technical consultant and there's evidence in the record that someone literally expressing in an email that yes, I understand this, this technical assessment that we're getting is meant to be um, is, is meant to be a pretext for terminating Neil's employment because we think when we terminate him, that's going to end our obligations under this asset purchase agreement. So it was just, there was, and there, there's a number of, of other pieces in the record of just underhanded a- activity by PRA. There were customer opportunities that were presented, one called Vertex that we referred to. Um, Neil's boss immediately recognized it as a potential external sale and then... Took him off, or didn't said I didn't want Neil to read this in an email that she forwards, and then has to you know talk with her colleagues about how they're going to deal with the fact that this might be a sale, and um, they don't want to pursue it. Um, the operational decisions that PRA made, um, certain sort of like I said technical things, um, were all done uh, with the device in mind to to thwart the external sales. Like I said, there was this kind of plot to terminate Neil's employment.
0: Um, there's, I guess the question I have, just thinking about other applications of, of claims for unfair and deceptive trade practices, is, is plotting to get out of a contract, the things you're describing, I mean, should that be a claim for unfair and deceptive trade practices? Because the contract will provide, if there wasn't a basis to, uh, to get out of a contract and not perform your obligation then the contract will give the other party the benefit of their bargain. And if there is a basis to get out of the contract, that's, you know, freedom of contract says you should have had a better contract. There's, yeah, you kind of go behind that and look and say, yeah, but look at the reasons why they were trying to avoid their contract obligation and say that's an unfair and deceptive claim?
1: Yeah, there's much more in the record than just like a kind of an efficient breach of the contract. Um, there, there is ample evidence of the fraudulent Um, nature of what was going on from the negotiations all the way through the termination. I mean the common thread is that PRA was trying to get the software implemented for itself and was shutting down all external sales on the other half of the deal the entire time. And as part of that um, they never said we're not going to do sales. They never came clean. It was all underhanded. It was all behind the scenes. It was all secretive. There's lots of you know, and then there's a lot of like what they call like lulling activity. I think in uh, in some in some circles, where you tell somebody to do something and you don't really mean it. You're just trying to send them on a bit of a fool's errand. There's an email where Neil has come up with these like extensive sales presentations, and the CEO doesn't respond to Neil, but sends it to some other people and says, geez, I put that in your in your packet." I mean, it's it's just evidence that goes with everything else that shows there was never any intent, and that the unfair practices are just. Um, false assurances to kind of keep someone hanging on. There's an email where someone says they want to get some more information out of him to quote extract his product knowledge and then they're in a hurry to get him terminated so they can just get what they need and then let him go. And those are all sort of emails that are like feeding through this. And I think that takes it from just a, hey, how do we get out of this deal to like we know we have been deceitful from the beginning of this deal and now we're going to try to get out of it with more of the same conduct. So you've got, you've got those kind of threads running throughout the whole record. Um, and I think I've used up, um, well, I'm down to just three minutes of my time and I haven't covered uh, um, several things that I wanted to get to. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little bit in if I could because there's something important I wanna mention on the, on the motion to dismiss. That, that stopped um, our negligent misrepresentations claim and, our, and a lot of our fraud claim from going to summary judgment. I think the business court made two major errors in that, in that ruling. Um, one was that he clipped our fraud claim of all omissions. Um, he just eliminated all allegations of omissions, and, and in our amended complaint, we have extensive allegations of what was omitted, the idea that they omitted conditioning and sequencing um, from all the negotiations that was left out, that same testimony that I referred to that Neil knows it was there and nobody else can seem to remember it. Um, and the, the court just sort of glossed over all of that and and, and and just focused on the fact that we needed a representation, an affirmative representation, and, and just left out all of the concealment. And there's a there's a good case, Powell v. Wald, that we presented to the court where uh, concealment by omission comes through from negotiations. The business court overlooked its own, um, pleading uh, omissions by concealment standard that they have adopted. And what I also note about that is when it came to the omission, uh, cons- omission uh, fraud by omission standard, the business court ignored its own pleading standard that would have been helpful to VHS had it used it. When it came to negligent misrepresentations, the business court overlooked this court's precedent for pleading negligent misrepresentations. And instead of looking at that under Rule 8, the business court looked at it under Rule 9B and required particularity for a negligent misrepresentations claim. And and that, that defied a whole line of case law. Like if that if that decision stands, there's an entire body of case law from this court about Rule 8, uh, sorry, negligent misrepresentations being governed by Rule 8 and the liberal pleading standards. Um, I mean, just several cases that we presented in our brief. And so I'll just point out the like, the you know inconsistency of what the business court did being able to cherry pick not using a business court case that would have been favorable to vhs but then also ignoring this court's precedent when it would have been favorable to vhs so it kind of left us with not much of our claim Uh, we got rid of like significant aspects of our claim on that on that motion to dismiss and i'll leave it there because i have less than uh, hardly any of my time left. thank you all thank you
0: counsel We'll here from the
4: appellee. May it please the court. Good morning. I'm John Moy with Barnes and Thornburg. With me is my colleague Mitch Osterday, and we are here on behalf of the appellee's Pharmaceutical Research Associates and PRA Health Sciences, which has collectively been referred to this morning as PRA. As my friend acknowledged earlier, this dispute stems from a contract an asset purchase agreement that was entered into in 2015 between the appellants, Neil Parthasarathy, and his company, VHS, and PRA related to the acquisition of clinical trial management software that VHS had developed in 2013. Now, under the APA, PRA acquired all right title and interest in the software, and it paid $2.5 million in connection with that acquisition. It also brought on Mr. Parthasarathy as a VP of technology and paid him a salary of $235,000 a year as an at-will employee working for the company. And it brought on a team of 12 developers who were based in India who were previously with VHS and joined PRA. In addition to the $2.5 million that was paid up front in the contract, the contract envisioned two sets of milestone payments, as my friend acknowledged. First, a set of what they call functional milestones, Um, and a set of external sales milestones. Both allowed for additional back-end consideration if certain targets or thresholds were met, but they were by their nature contingent, and as the appellants have acknowledged, they were not guaranteed. As to the three functional milestones, I want to address a comment that was made earlier about this being a quote, one-way street. That is certainly not the case, and is in fact contradicted by the record. If you look at volume one in the Rule 9-D submissions, At page 416, our IT department, Mr. Mike Irene, sent a list of what we call the functional gaps in the software to Mr. Parthasarathy pre-closing and identified these are the technical and functional gaps that need to be filled in the software after the contract is done. Mr. Parthasarathy received that email, acknowledged it, and in fact, that list of gaps later became the actual schedule to the APA and became the functional milestones that needed to be met he acknowledged in his deposition that both parties knew there were gaps that needed to be filled. Under the functional milestones, they agreed that if certain gaps and functions were added to the software, such that the software could operate in PRA's environment, if all the different uh, gaps and enhancements were made in the software, and ultimately clinical trials could be run using the software, that there would be an additional $1 million in contingent payments, or $333,000 per milestone. There were also a series of external sales milestones pursuant to which the parties agreed that if a license was sold in the software to a third party, for example, a pharmaceutical company or another customer of PRAs, then VHS would receive 10% of the gross revenues from those sales. For example, if PRA sold the software and received 25 million, VHS would receive 2.5. As VHS acknowledged in discovery, Under this framework, there was, quote, upside to both parties if external sales were achieved. These types of contingent milestones are not uncommon with an asset purchase. They establish a joint set of goals and incentivize the goals to be met by offering the seller back end consideration if the targets are achieved. But they are by their nature contingent, and they have to be triggered for payments to be owed under the APA. My friend earlier in his comments said that PRA got everything it wanted with the software. and Unfortunately, that's not the case. Despite the party's efforts, good faith effort, the technical milestones were not accomplished within the 18-month time period set forth in the functional goals. That 18-month period meant that the functionality needed to be added to the software by the end of December of 2016, and it is undisputed that those functional goals were not met by the end of the 18 months. And despite efforts to pursue external sales of the software, PRA found itself without a viable software product to sell to its customers. The software had not yet gone operational within PRA. Indeed it took almost three years for the software to be up and running within PRA, and PRA wanted to have confidence in the software that it was selling to its customers before engaging in such external sales. Mr. Parthasarathy acknowledged in his deposition that if PRA did not have confidence in the software that it was selling, that would be a, quote, legitimate business reason not to pursue such sales. The record in this case is substantial, but the business court was familiar with it from start to finish. Uh, Judge McGuire engaged in the record throughout the case, and he had considered almost all of the evidence that my friend uh, cited to earlier this morning, some of which I'll talk about as well. The court issued carefully rendered opinions First at the 12b6 stage and then in a 68-page summary judgment opinion. And there were well-reasoned interim rulings along the way. Appellants now now claim that the business court never gave this case a fair chance. They can attempt to convert a contractual dispute into a wide-ranging conspiracy involving unfair and and deceptive trade practices, fraud, and et cetera. But when you strip away the hyperbole, the rulings were thorough and were well-reasoned. And I want to talk first about the summary judgment order. As I mentioned, uh, the first claim that's being alleged is a breach of Section 2.6A, which are the functional milestones. Just to be clear, there is zero evidence in the record that the functional milestones were met within 18 months of closing. In fact, in November of 2016, about a month before the expiration of the functional deadline, Mr. Parthasarathy wrote an email where he acknowledged and highlighted the different functional milestones and said, which ones were not completed, or as he put it, which were partially done. He never took the position at that time that any of the milestones had been completed and, and because they weren't. So instead... But,
3: uh, just, uh, sorry to interrupt yes, you, but just as I understand his claim here today, it's not that they were met and therefore the breach is that the, of the failure to pay, but that the, but the PRA, that there's evidence, again, his evidence taken in the light most favorable to him as the non- moving party on this summary judgment, that that his evidence shows that the, that the company did not, in good faith, do what needed to be done to meet those milestones, and right. then started changing the technical requirements.
4: The way I would respond to that is that the, the company was working very diligently to go live with the software as quickly as it could. Mr. Parthasarathy first attempted to go live with the software in March of 2016, and that failed. We talk about that effort in our briefing. As far as the functional goals, PRA did have certain functionalities that it wanted to prioritize over others. But part of that analysis, first of all, that analysis was done after reviewing a full gap analysis of the software in the spring of 2016 and trying to identify what was feasible within the timeframe that they had left, which again was expiring in December. So I understand the argument that, you're right, none of the milestones were met. Should should more of an effort be put into that or or perhaps by prioritizing certain ones over others, was that a breach of good faith? Our argument, and I'll talk about that more in the implied covenant claim, our argument would be that under Delaware law, there's no evidence that that was arbitrary or unreasonable, and in fact, it was a legitimate business purpose that was undertaken there. Mr. Parthasarathy was involved in those discussions about what functionality would be added and and perhaps completed uh, on a certain schedule. And again, the CEO in August of 2016 sends an email to the entire IT department where he appoints Mr. Parthasarathy as leading the effort to go live with the software by December And at that point, they've done the gap analysis and identified what needs to happen. They also argue on appeal, as we heard earlier, that PRA did not quote reasonably determine whether they had been completed. And again, in November of 2016, he has sent an email to the IT department saying that some were done and others were only partially done. Mike Irene of the IT department then took that analysis and reviewed it and, and identified which ones he thought were code complete or mostly code complete and which ones were not completed and in good faith proposed a set of amended milestones, given that the deadlines had expired, where perhaps it would make it easier for Mr. Parthasarathy to meet the targets going forward. So again, that was a good faith effort to try to make it easier for him to achieve the functional goals, not to arbitrarily or unreasonably change them midstream. So we believe as far as the breach of section 2.6a on the functional goals, there was no express breach and that neither was there an implied breach, which again, I'll talk about a little bit more under under Delaware law. As far as your honor's question about section 2.6b, which talks about the independence of contingent payments, we believe the business court appropriately concluded that that section speaks to PRA's duty to pay when a milestone is completed. And if you look at the example within 2.6b, it essentially says that PRA cannot refuse to pay on one milestone by arguing that a second milestone has not yet been completed but the the duty clearly speaks to the obligation to make a payment once a a milestone has been satisfied. Here there's no argument that the functional milestones were satisfied, and instead they're arguing that by sequencing the deployment in the way that we did that that breached 2.6B. Our position, which we think the business court got right, is that that paragraph doesn't speak to anything about sequencing or the manner in which the software is implemented within PRA's IT environment. It speaks to the duty to pay once a milestone is completed.
3: But but I am I am struggling with how to truly draw that distinction because if you're going to say that the payment isn't conditioned on completing one, but but we're only going to go to the second one if we complete the first one, I it, I don't see how there's actually any distinction between that.
4: Well, first of all, they, all of these milestones were happening at the same time. The first milestone, for example, was simply bringing in the software that had been acquired into PRA's environment. That's that's. A little one. Little two was happening concurrently, which was adding the different functions listed in the schedules to the software. So so this is not a situation, and there's no evidence in the record that we basically said we're only gonna focus on this one and not that one, uh, to to your honor's question. In fact, they were all happening concurrently. What I hear opposing counsel to be saying is that essentially by taking any position in terms of how we're going to structure the implementation, that that breaches 2.6B. And again, our response would be that The the provision is unambiguous and it clearly, by the example that's provided, talks about the obligation to pay upon the completion of a milestone.
3: Well, well, the example is just an example and it does say contingent upon the satisfaction of any conditions precedent. And I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around (laughs) is you know, if all if all three of the um, milestone functions were going on at the same time, they were integrating the environments, they were filling the gaps, and presumably they were pursuing external sales. Then, then how does it make sense to say that? Well, we we payment of one can't be conditioned on payment of the other if you are conditioning completion of one on completion of the other. Do you see
4: what I'm saying? I, I see what you're saying, but that's, I guess my response would be that there's no evidence in the record that we were conditioning one upon completion of the other. Oh. In other words, they were happening concurrently. Okay. Um, and, and perhaps that's a good segue to the duty of good faith because I think that's, a, that's obviously a key issue here. The Delaware courts have made clear that under Delaware law implying a duty into the contract that's not already already in the contract is a limited and extraordinary remedy and it should only be done rarely. If it were otherwise a party could always get to a jury uh, on a breach of contract claim not because any express provisions were breached but by saying that there were additional obligations imposed that were implied in the contract and so for that reason the delaware courts have held that they are cautious to read such implied duties into the contract in this case appellants are arguing that they did not believe the contract was performed in good faith or in a way that they think it should have been but as, as was picked up on earlier in the questioning the parties failed to negotiate for any types of best efforts or reasonable efforts clause in this contract. Mr. Parthasarathy was represented by counsel and he clearly could have negotiated for example that within day one we believe that you ought to start selling the software to these identified customers. He could have requested that a certain marketing budget be dedicated to external sales. He could have requested that PRA create a spin-off division as he later did propose um, and require that PRA sell the software through a separate IT division of the company. He didn't request any of those things in negotiations and therefore they did not make their way into the APA. Nor did he even request a best efforts clause or a duty to maximize external sales or a duty to do certain things along the way to meet these goals. He could have requested that a certain number of resources be staffed on the functional milestones.
3: But but isn't that true any time under Delaware law um, the implied covenant comes into play; that there that that there always could have been language in the contract to cover what what the courts ultimately decide was implied. And in, in fact, sort of part of the reason why there isn't language is because it's it's implied at the time. And and I and what I'm struggling with is the cases that are cited. So the TWA um, versus Complete Product Services, O'Toole versus Genmar Holdings. Um, and and also I think Huntington versus pharmacy courts, two of those are federal courts interpreting federal uh, Delaware law. One is a Delaware um, Superior Court opinion, but all of them seem to be in very similar factual circumstances, that they are APA agreements with contingent payments based on milestones, and the courts say that it's a jury question, right? That, that, that it's a, a disputed issue of material fact, whether or not Um, the efforts that the party, in all those cases, what the parties thought was gonna happen didn't actually happen. (laughs) And so it becomes a disputed issue material fact for the jury to decide whether it was implied or not.
4: Two responses, Your Honor. First of all, on your question about the fact that it always could be something that could have been included in the contract and weren't. You're correct, and a, a best efforts clause Could have been included here and it was not, as I pointed out. But as the courts have held, including the TWA case that you just mentioned, the duty will only be used to fill an an alleged gap in the contract if it was a topic that the parties failed to anticipate during negotiations. And that's very important. If they negotiated pre-contract for certain issues and did not include them in the contract, the courts will not then read into the contract things that were not negotiated about. Things that, sorry, things that were negotiated about. In this case, it's undisputed, as I pointed out earlier, that they negotiated and exchanged the set of functional goals that needed to be met within 18 months, and they also discussed the prospect of making sales and agreed that it would be a a promising proposition. In fact, my opponent talked about the board presentation earlier, which he claims shows that PRA had no intention of making sales. In fact, in the internal board presentation, PRA says that after this agreement is completed, it will create a pathway to a revenue-generating business unit. And what's referred to there is, in other words, a new income stream in the form of sales of the software. So contrary to, my, uh, to the appellant's characterization, PRA wanted to sell the software. His client acknowledged that there was upside to both parties if such sales were achieved. But again, to get to your question, in this case, they negotiated pre-contract for the functional goals and, for the, and they discussed the topic of sales. Despite that, they did not include any additional covenants or obligations on PRA post-closing For example, requiring that sales be made by a date certain, or requiring that PRA dedicate a certain number of resources. Delaware courts have said that when the parties anticipated something and then the contract is silent to it, they should be cautious and hesitant to read into that some kind of implied covenant. Similar cases are are the Windshaw case, which we cite, or the Airborne Health case, which also involve earnout payments on the back end. But in those cases, the courts recognized that if the parties negotiated things up front and then failed to create protections after closing in the form of a reasonable efforts clause or any kind of duty to, to perform certain obligations attendant to maximizing sales, that the court will not read into those. And finally, to your honor's question about the cases you mentioned, both TWA uh, and the other case you mentioned, O'Toole, TWA is a superior court case. It's unpublished from Delaware. That case involved a situation where a fracking company bought uh, 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 the assets of a, of a seller, and then, after acquiring the company, competed directly against the company that it had acquired through its own subsidiary. There was also evidence that it actually made affirmative steps to exclude from the from the earnout calculations revenues that would have boosted the earnout. So, in that case, the court found egregious and un, you know bad faith conduct, essentially manipulating the earnouts and actually competing against the company that it had acquired. There's no such evidence here. Similarly, in the O'Toole case from the Tenth Circuit, an aluminum boat manufacturer sold its company to the largest boat manufacturer in the world, and they were back in milestone conditions if certain sales targets were were achieved. After the contract closed, the large boat manufacturer shut, shut down the brand, flipped all of its dealers to other brands of boats, and essentially stopped selling the brand that it acquired altogether. There's no evidence of that here. It's not like we acquired the software and shelved it and did nothing with it. To the contrary, we were working diligently to go live with it by adding the functionality we think it needed, and we were also pursuing the option of external sales. There are a series of documents that we cite in, in our brief where the IT department is engaging in communications about what would it take to start selling the software. What would that look like? Mr. Parthasarathy did a presentation where he estimated it could cost between four to six million in additional investment, but there were other communications that he wasn't copied on where the IT department are considering what the different factors would go into selling the software to customers. The problem, as I mentioned, is that the software wasn't operational yet. And for example, in the context of Vertex, which was one customer that came to us and asked if we had a software, we did a demo of the software to Vertex, and Vertex actually decided they didn't want to buy it because they didn't want to buy something that PRA wasn't using internally. that was still in the development phase. So it's not the kind of case like TWA or O'Toole where we were competing against the company that we acquired, where we basically shut down any efforts to make sales, despite the characterizations. There was a significant interest in making them if they could be achieved. But again, we needed a viable product to sell to our customers and have confidence in. And Mr. Parthasarathy acknowledged that that was a legitimate business reason to withhold on making them if we didn't have that confidence. I want to briefly talk about fraud claims Uh, first on summary judgment the business court appropriately granted summary judgment on the two claims that were pled one was for intentional misrepresentation the other one was for fraudulent inducement Um, the business court applied rule 9 to the pleading I think if you look back at the first amended complaint it's apparent that the complaint is replete with language about PRA misrepresented or PRA stated without identifying the speaker the time the statement was made the content or any other additional circumstances. For example, there's language in the complaint that talks about during the years-long due diligence process, PRA made misrepresentations. The business court appropriately concluded that that was not, um, under Rule 9, those claims were subject to dismissal. The claims that survived dismissal in Rule 12.
0: Do you have to plead with particularity under Rule 9 the negligent misrepresentations?
4: If you're I think saying it's the, not intentional; it's negligent. The business court, the business court applied it. I think the business court looked at decisions from the business court and the federal circuits, which, including North Carolina federal law, which uniform, uniformly applies it. And obviously, the rule references both fraud and mistake. So we think the business court got it right in applying Rule Nine to negligent misrepresentation. But if the court does not want to reach that issue, we believe that it was subject to dismissal anyway, because under the neg- under the claim as it needs to be pled. There has to be an allegation that gives rise to a duty of care under the law, Um, and here there's no such duty. The case that they cite, for example, in support of their argument, is a case called Raritan Steel, which involved an accounting firm. And and they also cite the Dowd case, which was similarly Ernst and Young, and the courts have held in those situations there's obviously a legal duty, or almost a fiduciary duty, that's created by the accountant relationship that that could create a a negligent uh, concealment claim. In this case, there's no such argument here this was an arm's length business transaction between a party represented by counsel, And finally, to the negligent misrepresentation claim, that if you, the gist of the claim is essentially that we got access to the software in the course of due diligence and somehow that created a heightened duty on us uh, to tell Mr. Parthasarathy the functionality that we needed. But again, there's no case law cited. They don't have a single North Carolina case where a similar arm's length transaction has given rise to a duty of care for purposes of negligent misrepresentation. So we think rule nine was appropriate but even if, even if the court is not inclined to reach that issue, there's other bases for dismissing it under Rule 12b-6. Briefly on the fraud claims at summary judgment, there were three claims that were remaining um, after many of the claims were dismissed. So Judge McGuire did not dismiss the fraud claims completely. He allowed three to survive to summary judgment. One was the statement that the letter of intent constituted fraudulent misrepresentations. The business court appropriately found that that letter by its language was non-binding. It says throughout the document that it's not intended to be relied upon, it does not create any kind of legal obligation, and plaintiffs have failed to cite to any case in the record where uh, a North Carolina court has held that a non-binding letter of intent that by its language makes clear that it is only uh, outlining or thinking of a transaction gives rise to some kind of fraudulent misrepresentation of affirmative fact. The only other two bases for fraud at summary judgment were the statement that uh, PRA intended to amend Mr. Parthasarathy's agreement. Um, The first one was made by the CEO in February of 2016, and essentially he had sent an email where he said, we are working on trying to get you a contract. At the time, Mr. Parthasarathy had asked if the agreement could be amended to make it easier for these milestones to be achieved, and PRA agreed with that. We cite a list of evidence on page 55 of our brief, where after discussing the issue with Mr. Parthasarathy, The CEO tasked the general counsel of the company in December of 16 to start preparing an amendment to the APA. There's multiple correspondence where the amendment was being worked on and exchanged within the IT department. The only issue is that Mr. Parthasarathy never got the amendment before his employment ended. So, but as as your honors are likely aware, uh, non-performance of a promise is not fraud. In this case, there was no evidence that when Mr. Shannon, the CEO, stated that he was trying to get a contract to Mr. Parthasarathy, that, that was false when made, or that he had no intention of keeping the promise, because in fact they were working on an amendment at that time. A similar statement was made by De- Deborah Jones Herzog, where she said that she had proposed a revised timeline to the milestones and were awaiting approval. Mr. Parthasarathy testified that he, he did not know at the time that that was true, but in fact he later learned that they were circulating an amendment to the contract, he just didn't know it uh, when he was working there. So again, we think the summary judgment was appropriate on the three limited aspects of fraud that remained, and the rest of the fraud claim should have been dismissed under Rule 9 due to lack of particularity, uh, and the same applies to the case for negligent misrepresentation. I wanna talk just very briefly, because Your Honor asked a question about the unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. Believe that the court appropriately granted summary judgment on that after allowing it to get to the summary judgment stage. The business court correctly found that other than the contract claims that were alleged, and the fraud claims I've mentioned, which were appropriately dismissed, there were no other separate circumstances or evidence that would give rise to an unfair and deceptive trade practice. Uh, The courts have made clear that it's very hard to prove unfair and deceptive trade practices in a contractual relationship after the contract has been entered into. Uh, The reason for that is that normally the complaints are about the performance of of the contract or the failure to perform it in a particular way, and those create contractual remedies, not remedies for a separate tort under Chapter 75. Uh, that's the post-Avita drugs case that talks about how post-contractual conduct will rarely give rise to an unfair and deceptive trade practices claim here uh, other than alleging that the letter of intent was fraudulent alleging that uh, representations were made that, th- that were otherwise the subject of the fraud claims there's no substantial aggravating circumstances that take this beyond the scope of a breach of contract case into a tort for unfair and deceptive trade practices claim there's language on appeal Uh, They argue in their briefing that the termination of his employment was a ruse, that Mr. Parthasarathy was deceived into thinking that he was going to stay employed and ultimately PRA made the decision to terminate him. Our response to that is first that he was an at-will employee, which is undisputed. Um, He could have again negotiated for a different term of employment, uh, but he did not. Uh, He acknowledged that he was at-will and could be terminated at any time. When he was terminated, he was given a severance payment uh, as well. Um, But also, under Chapter 75, the courts have held that those unfair and deceptive claims cannot apply to employer-employee relationships, which is essentially what he's complaining about. That in the course of working for the company, he was led on and kind of strung along and then abruptly terminated uh, when he wasn't expecting it. Uh, And we believe that that does not give rise to a Chapter 75 claim, and it was appropriately adjudicated at summary judgment. Uh, Just briefly, on the uh, the two remaining issues, Uh, The business court appropriately found uh, that there was grounds to deny the motion for leave to amend the first amended complaint. They sought to file a second amended complaint late in the case after discovery had closed um, and after depositions had been taken and 100,000 documents had been exchanged. Um, That was not an abuse of discretion by the business court. It had a legitimate basis for denying the motion for leave, finding that it would be prejudicial to PRA given the late stage of the case. Um, and and that it would have essentially revamped the entire scope of the case if it were allowed. We cite authorities for the premise that courts have discretion in deciding whether to grant leave to amend after first granting leave to amend a year earlier, or in this case, on the eve uh, of a 12b-6. Finally, we think the business court appropriately handled the Rule 10.9 discovery dispute that's raised in the briefing. There was no abuse of discretion in that. Uh, The rule is promulgated by this court, and it allows trial courts to to exercise discretion in deciding how to sequence discovery and deciding uh, rendering decisions along the way. In the case of Rule 10.9, it allows the business court various options to dispose of discovery disputes as they come up. It can have a telephonic hearing and then issue a subsequent ruling. It can request briefing and motion practice under Rule 37. In this case, the court heard the arguments about the discovery that was being requested, ultimately uh, issued a seven-page opinion denying the discovery, but without prejudice to revisit the issue after it disposed of a threshold question on summary judgment. Um, And so if you read the business court's decision, um, it had a legitimate basis for doing what it did under Rule 26, and declining to deny the discovery outright, but preferring to rule first on a threshold legal question. I can see that my time is almost up, so if your honors have no further questions.
0: Counsel, quickly, um, can you uh,
2: help
4: me understand your clients position that the agreement with Takeda did not constitute an external sale yes your honor uh, three three quick responses to that first of all the language in the uh, APA the definition of external sale is the sale of a license in the software to a third party uh, in other words and we believe that language is unambiguous but it, it contemplates that the software will a license in the software then will then be sold to a customer or a third party so that they can use it In this case, Takeda entered into a services agreement with us where we basically brought a number of Takeda employees on site to PRA and badged them with PRA badges to allow them to work collaboratively with us in an environment where we were managing clinical trials. As part of that, there's language in the Takeda agreement where we do give a license, although there's no consideration attached to it, to Takeda to allow Takeda the right to access and use PRA's technology. And then there's a schedule that lists the technology they're going to be using, and it lists things like Microsoft Office, WebEx, and other software that's going to be used as part of this collaborative relationship. But again, the business court properly found, I think, that the definition of an external sale requires the sale of a license. And a sale connotes an exchange or a payment of money. There is no evidence here that there was any payment attributable to the license language that appears in the Takeda Agreement, and clearly there's no evidence that the software was ever sold to Takeda as a standalone product. In fact, on page 38 of their brief, they acknowledged that PRA did not charge any fee to Takeda for the use of this software. And so we believe the business court appropriately found that that was not an external sale as contemplated in the APA and granted summary judgment on that issue. Thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal.
1: Thank you. I'll just say quickly um, the evidence that it wasn't a one-way street is actually evidence that it was a one-way street. That's Mike Irene telling Neil what the requirements are gonna be uh, that PRA wants. It was a one-way street from beginning to end. Uh, There was a a comment that, uh, that PRA was pursuing external sales. It's preposterous. We've got several pages in our brief that goes over specific customer opportunities, Edwards Pharma, Vertex, uh, Paragon, the Takeda deal was not credited as an external external sale. And then the very last thing you can see, this is um, deposition transcript of Andrew Gill that is in the back of the packet that I gave you. Council, asked- I believe your
0: time's expired. Thank, thank, you. thank you, thank you both.